This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 10 Her Pillow Mate She could not have told at the time why she had concealed it, why she had kept silent while everything in the house was searched except the personal belongings of the schoolmistress. Now she knew. I'll bet if we could find that doll, we'd find a string tied round its neck so tight. It's choking me. Fingers cold as ice took a velvet ribbon from the box on the dresser and tied it around the doll's rag throat, tight, tighter, tighter, until the cotton neck was no bigger than a slate pencil, and the stuffed head lolled foolishly to one side like a chicken's with its neck run, but not severed. The fingers knotted the velvet in a hard double knot and left two streamers dangling. They were Judith's fingers. The heat in her body had cooled now. She was so cold she had no feeling about anything. She sat with the doll in her hands and listened. Footsteps moving up the stairs. Richard's mother coming up to bed. She had talked with her son. She had told him she was sending Thorne to Kentucky. He had finally yielded. The very tap of the shoes upon the bare oak stairs made this announcement. Anne Tomlinson had settled her household before coming to bed. Judith waited until the footsteps died upon the carpet of the room across the hall. Then she slipped Thorne's doll into the pocket of her voluminous skirt and went back downstairs. She found Richard in the dining room. It was exactly as she had guessed. His mother had told him her decision, and he had made no further protest. He realized at last that his wife would die unless her mind was relieved. He looked drawn and haggard, utterly without hope. Whether the misery in his eyes was for his wife's condition or for the loss of his little friend, Judith could not tell, but the time was past for encouraging him to hold firm. Perhaps I was wrong, she admitted, in urging you to keep Thorn, but I honestly thought I was helping you. You were. You don't know what a help you've been. He looked at her gratefully from hollow, sleep-starved eyes, and then he looked away. I'm convinced my wife will die, Miss Judith, if Thorn remains in this house. I don't pretend to understand how such a thing can be, but I have come to believe in witchcraft the witchcraft of one's own mind. There was silence between them. Judith's hand clutched something tightly within the folds of her skirt. She said, Thorn can come back afterward. What do you mean, afterward? After your wife has recovered. You think my wife will recover? When the child is gone, your wife will begin to eat. When she begins eating, she will regain her strength. Unconsciously, Judith's voice hardened. Of course, she will always be an invalid, but invalids usually live to a ripe old age. 
Perhaps her companion noted the implication in her words, for his denial came swiftly. I don't agree with you. I believe my wife's recovery will be complete once her mind is set at rest. Twin spots of color burned upon his gaunt, unshaven cheeks. His hollow eyes flashed fire. Never had he looked less comely, never had he been more desirable to the woman than he was at that moment. For she guessed that he was lying to himself as well as her. He did not believe his wife would ever be anything but a hopeless burden. He was trying to deny his own protest, which he was afraid she might see. Need sleep, Mr. Tomlinson. Why don't you go upstairs and get a good night's rest? Let me stay with your wife tonight. He passed his hand across his eyes, sorely tempted, yet muttering. No, no, it's my job. I can't think of putting it on you. But Judith urged. Tomorrow's Saturday. I can sleep all day if need be. After much pleading, he yielded, on condition that she call him at midnight. They would divide the watch between them. Abigail had been given some sleeping drops, he said. She would probably sleep for the first part of the night. Judith waited until his hushed footfall had faded upon the stairs. Then she went noiselessly down the passage to his wife's room. She opened the door without making a sound and closed it in silence behind her. She stood motionless beside the sick bed. Abigail lay as Judith had so often seen her in the attitude of death. The hands folded on her bosom rose and fell with the rhythmic respiration of drugged sleep. Judith drew the doll from her pocket and laid it on the pillow beside the sleeper. Then she prepared to wait. There was a coal fire in the grate and a shaded night lamp on a little table by the easy chair. She sat down in the chair and tucked her cold hands under her shawl to warm them. There was no sound in the room, not even the comforting tick of a clock. Richard's big gold watch lay beside the medicine chart on the night table, but it told the moments silently. The room was so quiet she could hear Abigail breathe. In, out. Inhale, exhale. In, out. Inhale, exhale. Richard had said she might sleep soundly all night. In, out. Inhale, exhale. In, out. Inhale, exhale. Judith hugged her cold body closer. The hands of Richard's watch moved slowly past the half hour. There was another sound in the stillness beside Abigail's breathing. It came from beyond the locked door leading to the front room. It was a muffled sound of childish sobbing. She recalled that Thorne was sleeping in the trundle bed. Strangely, the sound held companionship. She was not alone with that measured breathing. 
The hands of the watch move past the three quarters, the hour, the quarter hour. The sobbing beyond the door had ceased. She was alone. In, out, inhale, exhale, in, out, inhale. She waited for the exhalation, but it did not come. Abigail was awake. Judith did not have to move from her chair to see what was happening. She had only to turn her head. The shade of the night lamp cast a shadow that obscured the chair. But the coal fire shed a glow that illuminated the bed. Abigail had turned toward the fire and was facing the doll on her pillow. She lay rigid, motionless, eyes fixed, and glassy as death. For a moment, it seemed as though she had died at a single shock. Then very slowly, she put out a hand and clutched the doll and found it real. A convulsive shudder ran through her body. She opened her mouth to scream. No sound came. The doll was in her hand. She could not let it go. In fascinated horror, she drew it closer, examining it in detail. Its head lolled ludicrously to one side. And then she saw the velvet ribbon about its neck, tied so tight the rag throat was no bigger than a pencil. She dropped the doll with a sound of speechless terror and clutched her own throat. The doll fell noiselessly upon the carpeted floor. Judith, in the shadow of the night lamp, slid from the high-backed chair onto her hands and knees. Creeping to the side of the tall bed, she stealthily retrieved the doll. Then, still on her hands and knees, she edged over to the closet door and opened it a crack. Her groping hand found a gap between wall and floorboard. She stuffed the doll down this convenient hole. Abigail, gasping, strangling, choking, writhing upon the bed, could never have seen her. Miss Abigail, Miss Abigail, what's the matter? But Abigail could not speak. Whether the bulging eyes accused or implored the woman bending solicitly over her no longer mattered for the sounds that rattled from her throat were unintelligible. Oh, my dear, forgive me for going to sleep in my chair. Are you in pain? Tell me, what's the matter? Can't you speak? Only in articulate gurgles, a fast-failing breath, Abigail could tell no one anything. It was perfectly safe to call Richard. The trundle bed was too short for Thorn. Perhaps that was why she could not go to sleep. She lay on her back, eyes closed, while tears seeping from under her eyelids trickled into her mouth and ears. 
For the first time in her life, she had gone to bed at odds with Richard. She loved him so completely, so utterly to the exclusion of all else, that the sharp note in his voice had almost broken her heart. He had never spoken like that to her before, and never before had she flared up in anger at him. Her tears were as much for her own anger as for his reproof. She had called him stupid. She had called Richard, darling, darling Richard, as stupid when he was the only friend she had in the world. But he was stupid not to see what Miss Judith was up to. Her sobs came thick and fast. She turned on her face to smother them, shrinking from a fear as yet only half recognized. She cried until, from sheer exhaustion, she fell asleep. She woke from her first short nap to hear voices somewhere. Lights bobbed fantastically in the hall and hushed commotion filled the house. From the room beyond the alcove, strange noises filtered. In terror, Thorne started from her bed. Chilled hands caught her and put her firmly back. She started to scream, but a cold palm closed over her mouth. Don't make any noise. It was Judith. Her voice was colder than her hands. What is it? whispered Thorne fearfully. Abigail. Is she worse? She's dying. There was dim light from the hall. Thorne's eyes searched the schoolteacher's face. So strange was the tone of her voice. How do you know? Have you been in her room? I sat with her so Richard could get some sleep. Did she have another spell? Yes. Judith sat down on the side of the bed, her whole body tensed with listening. There was the sound of hurrying feet, subdued voices that told nothing. Strangling gasps from behind the connecting door. The ring of horses' hooves on the frozen ground outside. Judith whispered. (laughs) The doctor. Well went for Dr. Craxton. Together they sat and listened to the heavy tread of the doctor's boots, to the one unhushed voice that now dominated everything. They caught fragments of talk beyond the door. Membranous croup. Get kerosene. The woman's choking to death. They heard arguments over the dangers and merits of kerosene and goose grease, with Dr. Caxton shutting down Anne Tomlinson. I know it's inflammable, but goose grease won't cut phlegm. Bring me some coal oil, Richard. They heard feet racing to the kitchen. They heard windows being raised to give the choking woman air. They knew when coal oil was administered. They knew when it failed.
Together they listened, the woman and the child, bound in this moment by some fearful community of interest. Once, Thorne said in sudden panic, I don't want Miss Abigail to die. As though in strange foreknowledge of the potentialities of the event, Judith said coldly, They were going to send you to Kentucky. As though showing cause why some judgment had been pronounced. The child trembled and involuntarily shrank away from the schoolmistress. When certain sounds from the other room conveyed a dreadful message to the listening woman, she rose and drew the girl swiftly from the trundle bed. Come upstairs to my room. Unquestioningly, Thorne obeyed. It was nearly daylight when Anne Tomlinson came upstairs. She found Judith sitting by the bedside of Richard's sons. The candle had burned low and it was guttering flame through a queer light on the face bent over the sleeping children. For a moment, Miss Anne was stunned by the expression on the school teacher's face. Then the flame burned brighter and she saw only a look of compassion. Perhaps that exultant smile was a shadow cast by a smoking wick. I knew I couldn't be of any real help downstairs, said Judith. And I was afraid the little boys might wake up and start looking for you. Miss Anne nodded silently. She too bent over the sleeping children and tenderly touched little Raji's curls. I'm too old to bring up so young a child. Too old and too tired. It was the only time anyone ever heard Anne Tomlinson admit weariness. Judith whispered, Is it? But the words stuck in her throat. It's all over, said Miss Anne quietly. Their mother died at quarter to three. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at ValerieMoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. You can find me at carolsin.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as Carol Sin. You're listening to Bottom Shelf Recording Talk. Sounds boring. Oh my, yes. With your hosts, James Seabrook. Editing, mixing, and additional voices by James Seabrook at Two Bodies of Water Productions. Follow our hosts on Twitter at Two Bodies of Water. Got that mic in a comfortable spot yet? I'm still working on it. Hi, my name is Kylie and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com. And on my Instagram, at kmorgan with two A's. 
Hello, my name is Linda Moss, and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mum. Anyway, I did Thorn, aka Cricket, on Project DF, not known as I'm not telling the real name. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hi, my name is Rain, like the weather, and I will, will be playing the role of Abigail. Uh, I have a YouTube page called WWE What If, where I talk about wrestling reviews and my anger against some storylines that I can't stand. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. Abigail had been merely a disquieting presence in their lives, too long for them to feel any great sense of loss. What did you do? Asked Judith. There was nothing I could do. The doll wasn't there. The hands gripping the book relaxed. And I'm to be turned out to accommodate him? Just in time, she remembered that she would gain nothing by a display of shrewish temper. She asked in a different tone. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts, and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, r 57 9915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.